0: Okay, let's turn to the first epistle historically that Paul wrote, 1 Thessalonians, and the last historically that Paul wrote, Romans. 1 Thessalonians, written around 40. Tony, you can test me. Do you have the book? You got the 40? 1 Thessalonians is maybe... 40 late 40 Romans the spring of 52 Tony's got the book If you get that book framing Paul which I recommend and you don't want to read it the last page gives away the whole chronology of the epistles of Paul and then underneath it there's a a historical chronology all from the epistles themselves the lower blade data from the epistles. It's important for many reasons. And we'll discuss that a little bit tonight. Thank you for your generosity in the collecting of the toys for the Salvation Army. This is one of those things pretty close to my heart every year. And I appreciate it. And we'll be, this is only through this Sunday, right, Kath? Or Wednesday. We got it through Wednesday. Okay. All right few moments of silent preparation. I might even after the Thessalonian thing take a three minute break so you can take a breather and then hit it again. So if Mark you'd be aware of that I just I might break. Just try it. I just decided to do that because in exercising I realized sometimes I when I was 20 I could do something steadily for 45 minutes like go uphill with carrying seven-pound weights in each hand and throwing them around. Then I realized that's a little difficult to do. And so I did it for 20 minutes, breathed a little while, did it 25 more minutes. So I think maybe the same thing applies to taking in the word sometimes. So I'm going to have a little pity and uh, compassion on you all, maybe take a little break because there's really two segments of this study tonight. So let's pray. Father, we all have the sense of embarking on a new venture, a new enterprise as we enter into the study of Paul after a very long stint in the book of Revelation. And we thank you that you have given us a leading and given us direction and drawn us in this direction because you more than I, you more than all of us want to manifest your Son in his universal significance as creator and as redeemer. You yourself are occupied with your son and cherish him. And we desire to have your viewpoint of your son and to cherish him as well. We ask then that you'll open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding that we might perceive wonderful things in these Culminative scriptures that you granted to your servant, the Apostle Paul. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last night I introduced a, a very important theme, a very important aspect of our study in the epistles of Paul, and it's the word exigence. And I think that might be the more British way of saying it. We say exigency and By definition, exigence, I want to call it exigence. I just like that word better. It sounds more fitting. It's an urgent need or a demand. And by one definition, that demand is intrinsic to a circumstance or a condition. Or it can be a case or a situation that demands prompt action or remedy. And so every one of the epistles that Paul wrote has an exigence related to it. In other words, he is responding to a critical situation, or sometimes even to a set of questions like in Corinth. But in every case, there's an exigence. And that gives a little more more meaning to the title I've chosen, Better Call Paul. The exigence requires and demands a response. So again, exigence, and that applies to every one of Paul's epistles, and so it's an important theme. Exigence is an urgent need or demand, intrinsic to a circumstance or a condition, a case or a situation that demands prompt action or remedy or response. So in the case of every community epistle of Paul, First and Second Thessalonians, Ephesians, which we now identify as, as Laodiceans get used to that. We know this from Colossians 416 Colossians Philemon, which is not written just to Philemon. It was epistle written to a community of believers while it singled out Philemon on one single case, first and second Corinthians Galatians, Philippians and Romans. There was an exigence that called forth a response from Paul. So, Really, every epistle is a cries out, better call Paul, and Paul's response. Now, I want to consider this examples of exigence in the Thessalonian epistles and then also in the Roman epistles because I I want you to get the idea because this is very important for interpretation. Probably the main theological functional specialty that we're engaged in in Romans is interpretation. And also in all of Paul's epistles interpretation, because I've asked the question, do the, does the entire corpus, and that's just one of the words we use for the total collection. Let's just call that corpus or collection. Does the Pauline corpus or the entire corpus of Paul's epistles, and we're only dealing with the communal ones now, 10, that's minus first second Timothy Titus. There's a whole other thing we've got to talk about with those three epistles. But we're dealing with the ten, which I believe to be authentic of the Apostle Paul, and they are the communal epistles, the corpus of Pauline epistles. My main question, my main aim, and I don't want to get sidetracked by reading other men or their aims, my main aim is to settle the question whether the Pauline corpus is in itself an apocalypse or a revelation, an unveiling of Jesus Christ as he was revealed in Revelation as the Lamb in his universally redemptive significance, his universally redemptive significance. Now, there's a couple things that I, I know are hovering around in people's minds, and one of them I'm going to hit on Sunday. Sunday, I'm going to bring your Bibles. I better bring your Bibles on Sunday because I'm going to be hitting what for me is a vast section of Romans in one fell swoop, a vast section of Romans. Cause I know you've been curious about when is this teacher talking and when is Paul talking? And I'll show you pretty much the whole, almost the whole unfolding of that. When is the teacher talking? Well, you know, obviously it's not Paul talking when he says those who do good will inherit eternal life. And those who do evil get thumped by the wrath of God. You know that's not Paul. That's Romans 2, 6 to 10. Somebody else is doing the talking there. And Paul's replying, sometimes satirically, sometimes ironically, sometimes just plain sarcastically, sometimes reducing this other guy to absurdity. You've heard the Latin phrase reductio ad absurdum, a reduction of his, his gospel to absurdity. And we're going to... So I want to... <laughs> really make a big step there and so that'll alleviate you from one of the big questions the other question is where does human volition fit in and I'll say that that will be answered also but don't worry about it don't worry about it you chose to come here tonight didn't you were you free was it your volition or did somebody force you to come I know Tracy, you forced Kevin to come tonight, but that's, that's, uh, I, what you, but generally most people here, do you have free will? Do you wonder if you're saved? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Then you're saved. You don't have that's, there's no big deal. You're, you're, you're fine. You have eschatological assurance and security. So where is volition. If, if Christ is an unconditional savior and God has an unconditional covenant, then the question obviously arises, well, where does our volition enter? Well, I'll ask a few questions first of all. Was your volition involved in your first birth? And in James 1.18, God begot us according to his own will, by his own will. He begot us a second time. So it was a matter of God's will. So where does our will come in? Well, maybe our will which was once enslaved to only do that, which was then the Adamic existence is freed once we're in Christ truly free so that we can be free to obey the commandments of God and the power of the Holy spirit. So we have very free volition in Christ we have a a fairly free volition outside of Christ, but it's enslaved. Just some hints, just some hints. But we're back to exigence. What called forth each epistle? In the case of every community epistle of Paul, there was an exigence called forth a response from Paul. So really every epistle can be a response by Paul to better call Paul. His epistles were responses to exigencies or exigences, at least to implied exigences in every single case. Now, I think a classic, the easiest example is 1 Thessalonians. So I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 at first. A classic example of an exigence that called upon Paul to respond by an epistle was a great disturbance of the Thessalonians. After receiving information to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And the implication was they were left behind. I remember communication wasn't as fast back then as it is now. The exigence, and I mentioned this several times, but the historical occasion. That called that elicited this misinformation was called the Gaian incident. And it was when Gaius was the Caesar. The, the time is 39. Let's just call it CE, common era. We know it as AD or AD 39. Anna Domine, year of our Lord. It's late 39, maybe early 40. Gaius is the Roman emperor. He makes a proposition, a famous one. That he's going to desecrate, he doesn't call it that, but the Jews sure would, the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to go right into the Holy of Holies of the temple of Jerusalem and have a statue of himself erected and thereby proclaim himself to be the God of Israel and therefore the God of the universe. Now that would be tragic because that would pretty much fit the description of the abomination of desolation, which would invite the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming of the son of man, as it was understood by them. And so they received, and it was either of one or three means or by more than one or two means, either by a charismatic prophecy, someone speaking under the supposed power of the spirit or a message, a teaching that someone gave them or an epistle that might have been forged as if it was from Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. They were the three authors. These were all co, many of these were co authored. Paul took input from Timothy and from Silvanus and wrote these epistles. There was apparently an epistle written to them that this event, the Gaian event, signals the coming of the day of the Lord. And so their understanding is a lot like the modern understanding. Jesus came in a secret rapture already and took all the believers away. We must have gotten evangelized too late. We're left behind. Left behind. They could have, the authors of that series could have sold a lot of books in Thessalon- Thessalonica because that purports to be paul's eschatology and it isn't so we're faced with similar things today the roman emperor gaius was restrained in doing this i don't want to go into the whole history but the reason that paul assured them is that this he said the restrainer is going to restrain this from happening and in fact the providence of god kept that from happening it didn't happen gaius died the messengers that he sent and letters got messed up, and mess- everything got messed up. The providence of God intervened, and it didn't happen. But something like that happened in 70, as we know. The abomination of desolation, the surrounding of Jerusalem by the armies, the desecration of the temple, the destruction of the temple, etc. So Paul had to write back. And they said, better call Paul. Paul was in Athens when he received the call better call Paul. And Paul said I better write to the Thessalonians and dispatch the information to them quickly so the Thessalonians had subsequently then after that event been informed whether by again a charismatic utterance and those were legitimate at the time as we know from first Corinthians 12 to 14 By some form of teaching, logos or message, or word as from the Lord, or by an epistle that claimed to be from the apostolic missionaries who founded that messianic community. That this meant that the Lord had come in his parousia and had gathered his people to himself. The horrifying implication and imagine it, they were left behind. Now, Paul had already written to them about another question of eschatological anxiety on their part. They heard of the parousia. They heard of the resurrection. They then had questions. It's interesting that Paul's teaching created questions. and Sometimes they were questions that disrupted the mental composure of people. Their question in the first Thessalonians is their insecurity regarding loved ones who had died. So would they be left behind when the Lord comes? What was to be their fate at the parousia and the gathering together of the people of God to the Lord? Paul responded to that exigence. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, and every time I hit these, I do my own translation from the Greek text, so here it is. Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep so that you won't grieve like people who have no hope, people without one big feature in Paul's epistles, eschatological assurance. This teacher that Paul combats in Romans not only takes away people's eschatological assurance, but presents them with a lot of terror texts, fearful terror texts about storing up wrath for the day of wrath. When God, this very angry God, remember Jonathan Edwards, famous sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's the kind of teacher we have in this thing that Paul deals with. So they had eschatological, lack of eschatological assurance. There's all these commercials on TV called E-insurance. I call this E-assurance, eschatological assurance. I don't want you to grieve like the people who have no hope. For we who believe that Jesus died and arose... Also believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Here's a question I'll put to you. Paul talks about being asleep in Jesus in his early epistle. Ten years later, he talks about in his letter to the Philippians about wanting to depart from this life and to be with the Lord and by 2 Corinthians 10 years later Paul didn't think of it as a sleep he thought he knew then that there was an immediate presence of the person with the Lord at death did Paul develop did he actually was is there a development of Paul's theology throughout the writing of his epistles there could be. I'm, I, I'm not going to just throw it out as a mystery. I think there could be. But he, he speaks here of people who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And he says, you believe that God raised Jesus. We also believe that God will bring with him, that is, raise up together with him, those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this by a word from the Lord. Now somebody had already said by a word from the Lord. We're telling you the day of the Lord has come. And you've been left behind. I think that was actually a song by Larry Norman, wasn't it? If you're, no, nobody's as old as I am. You wouldn't remember Larry Norman. I want the people to know that he saved my soul. But I still like to listen to the radio. Larry, no, nobody remembers Larry Norman. Okay. We say this by a word from the Lord. Who's we? Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. If you read the outline of the, the beginning of the letter. This is a true word from the Lord. This is something the Lord told Paul. We who are still alive and remain at the parousia, the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the trumpet of God, or for the Lord himself, that is, the Lord himself, with a shouted command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will will be resurrected first. So don't worry about your loved ones. Then we who are alive or living and remaining at that time will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the upper atmosphere. Now, this is where the rapture doctrine comes in. Of course, people said, well, then he takes you away from there. No, parousia means he comes to stay. That's the arrival and the catching up of those who are alive when he comes is they're catching up into literally into the upper atmosphere, but also caught up into resurrected bodies to be with the Lord in a resurrected body. And they will come back to earth to stay with him and be with him forever. And so that kind of squares with Colossians three, three and four, you died Your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And of course, there will be a general bodily resurrection, a judgment unto restoration, and the restoration of all things when he comes too. So, but Paul wrote this. The exigence was, what about our dead loved ones? They didn't know anything about that then. They only had limited information. So, better call Paul. Paul gave him the answer. He goes on later to say, in five nine of First Thessalonians, God did not destine you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. He imparts to them eschatological assurance. Likewise, the exigence that called forth the second letter turned to Second Thessalonians chapter two, and I'm only doing this to show you and illustrate to you exigence in Paul's epistles. This one's even more obvious. As I mentioned before, the second letter was answered in this way. They had received by a supposed word from the Lord or by an epistle or by both or by a teaching or by all three that the day of the Lord had come and that they were left behind. Paul wrote this in Second Thessalonians 2.1. Concerning the parousia of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, And our gathering in his presence. I'm imploring you brothers. The word simply means asking. But it's strong. So I'd say imploring. I'm imploring you brothers. Not so hastily. To be shaken from your composure. Nor frightened. Not through a spirit. That's a charismatic gift. Or a teaching. That's logos, the same word he uses in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Or even by an epistle alleged to be from us. Alleged to be from us. Apparently they had... Re- now, if you read the end of the 2 Thessalonians in 3.17-18, Paul said, you see now that I'm signing this epistle with my own hand. And this will be the case in all of my epistles. So we know that in Paul's original epistles he marked them as authentic by his own hand apparently he had handwriting that you couldn't imitate very easily but even by an epistle alleged to be from us Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy claiming that the day of the Lord has come now I'm not going to go into the whole thing up to verse 12 about the coming of the man of lawlessness and the man of sin etc but I'm only doing this to illustrate The obvious exigence of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. The exigence of Romans, and this is going to set up for Sunday's message. There's a continuity in these messages. This is the 11th in Better Call Paul already. The exigence of Romans is a little more tricky. And so we're going to take a three-minute, four-minute, five-minute break. And you can eat the donuts that you have in your... Coat pockets or whatever, and we'll just come back to it. So let's take a short break. Part two. The, we'll just roll with it now. it's The exigence of Romans is the anticipated arrival of, and I'm going to use the terminology that it was used by Douglas A. Campbell in his truly groundbreaking work called The Deliverance of God, The Teacher The teacher, simply the teacher he has anticipated the arrival of a teacher who has another gospel, and this teacher is apparently well not apparently he's evidently a Jew, he is a Christian Jew, and he has another gospel, so Paul the exigence of Romans is not so much that the Romans called upon Paul, but Paul, God called upon Paul, you better write to the Roman church before you get there because his intention was to go to Spain. He had a missionary program and a missionary enterprise that he wanted to complete, and he had a fantastic success in his missionary enterprise, but he was on the way to Spain and he was going to stop in Rome And to have some fruit there, he says, in other words, to produce some fruit among you. Because Paul gently had to let people know that if there were churches among the pagans that were planted by someone else, that he still had authority over them because he was, by the calling of Christ and his commission in 34 AD or AD 34, by his commission by the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which was then recognized officially by the apostles in Jerusalem, that Paul would be the official apostle, the admiral of the fleet, as it were, to the Gentiles or the pagans, and that Peter would be given the uh, apostolic authority over the Jews, the circumcised. And they shook hands on it. So whenever Paul heard of an assembly that was planted by another person, but with the Pauline gospel, he had authority over that assembly, apostolic authority. So he would sometimes gently introduce himself and say, I want to come to see you guys and maybe give you a gift that you couldn't receive from anybody else except me, a gift, a a fruitfulness, uh, some edification, so again, the ex- exigence of Romans, however, was the anticipated arrival of this man called the teacher. By this time, Paul had mastered this guy's spiel. He even parodies this man's turn or burn sermon, which he reproduces in 118 to 32. That's all, and this is according to Campbell, and I agree with him. I'm going I'm to take a stand and agree with him, and it's not a popular stand, But I see it, I see it, I perceive it as being correct, that 118 to 32 of Romans is not Paul, but Paul parodying a speech of this teacher. He anticipates the arrival of this teacher because this teacher and his cronies, a whole group of people, are teaching another gospel. He had to deal with them in Galatia. Obviously, the exigence there was a defection of the churches in Galatia, a whole cluster of churches, went after another gospel that was brought to them by a teacher, a certain teacher. might have been the same guy. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote what is called later the letter of tears, and he called it that in 2 Corinthians. He wrote a letter of brokenheartedness to the Corinthians because they were influenced by other teachers and that those other teachers were bringing truth other than Paul's. He had this problem in 1 Corinthians. Someone was there teaching them that there was not going to be a bodily resurrection. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, again, to assure them eschatologically. But by now, he knew the whole spiel of this teacher. So the exigence of Romans is the anticipated arrival of the teacher. And that's why I want to take you back to the early part of Romans. Romans 1, 1 to 17 is Paul's introduction to, to his gospel one 16 and 17 is his thesis statement of his gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of salvation to those who have faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the pagan, the non Jew, the Gentile. And for therein, the righteousness of God is revealed Unveiled apocalypto, giving us a hint that Paul's writing is intended to be apocalyptic or revelatory. Therein the righteousness of God, which we have interpreted from Psalm 98 as the act, the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed by it, that gospel, which is truly good news. From faithfulness to faithfulness, not faith to faith, faithfulness, speaking of Christ's faithfulness as he interprets it right in the next sentence to faithfulness which is the shared or participated faithfulness of the people of God with Christ's faithfulness paul said it in galatians 2:20 i was crucified with christ nevertheless i live and the life that i now live i live by the faithfulness of the son of god the faithfulness of the son of god that led him to the cross and through the cross to exaltation and enthronement is a faithfulness that continues in you. And that's where your volition comes in. Will you allow that faithfulness to continue in you? Your faithful, your your volition is free now. You get to choose to assemble yourselves together in response to a command from God. Or not. You get to put off the old man. That's the freedom that you have. Put off the old man and all his practices and to put on the new man who is being renewed in righteousness. And you have that volition. You have a volition that's freer now than before you were in Christ. In fact, you have a volition that's been freed before you were in Christ. You couldn't choose to obey the commands of God and you didn't care at less about them anyways. So Romans one, 17 Goes on to say, as it stands written, the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. Paul says, this is what I mean by faithfulness, that therein the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness, Christ's, to faithfulness, your shared participation in his continued faithfulness. Because he goes on to quote Habakkuk 2.4, which is the key prophetic text I'm going to give you a barrage of Psalm quotes on Sunday morning. So get ready for that. But in Hebrews or in Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. This is a Christological announcement. The faithfulness is that of Christ. He is the righteous one. He lives by resurrection by his faithfulness, his faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion, his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, his faithfulness resulted in him living by resurrection. So when Paul says the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. He explains why the faithfulness belongs to the righteous one. And he goes on to explain later that we are not justified by our faith, but by Christ's faithfulness. And therefore we're saved by grace (laughs) And through a faithfulness that's not of ourselves, but of Christ, as he says in his earlier epistle to the Ephesians. So leading up to that key text or that thesis passage in 116 to 17, let's go back because I want to really engage the text here. Romans 1, 1b, and we started with Romans 1. I've done this many times already. Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called apostle. Why was Paul called apostle? Apostle. Because the triune God got together and said, we better call Paul an apostle. Set apart to the gospel of God. Now, starting right in 1B, where it says set apart to the gospel of God, 1B, through verse 4, constitutes a breach of, of etiquette. There was a special etiquette related to letter writing back then, and there is still today, but very few people use it because very few people write letters, which is sad. But Romans 1b to 4 constitutes a breach of epistolary etiquette on Paul's part. But because, it's because he wants to make emphatic a point. He said, I'm going to breach the normal etiquette. He doesn't address them until 1-7. Usually by 1-2, he said, to the saints at such and such a place, to the set-apart ones. He doesn't even do that till 7 because he's breached the etiquette there. The reason he breaches the etiquette is to make the point of the entire epistle. His gospel is God's gospel, which is all about his son, Jesus Christ, who was born according to the flesh of the seed of David, which identifies him as the duly anointed messianic king and dramatically designated as the son of God by being resurrected from the dead by the spirit of sanctification. So Paul says, I can't even wait. I've got to say this now. So excuse my breach of etiquette. So the so-called gospel of the teacher who opposes Paul's gospel who emerges from the shadows as we study Romans more and more, and he'll emerge a lot closer to be seen a lot clearer on Sunday morning, I think, if I do what I want to do, and that's iffy. His gospel is not all about God's Son. In fact, if you read his preamble of his turn or burn message, there's no reference to Jesus Christ at all in 118 to 32, or in two one to 13, for that matter. And there's a lot of gospels that Bring in Jesus at the end and say, thank God for him. God's a really angry God. Thank God he sent his son to protect us from his anger. That's not the gospel. And so the so-called gospel of the teacher who opposes Paul's gospel and who emerges from the shadows as we study Romans is not about God's son. His gospel is not Christocentric. He will interpret as many do today. He would interpret the righteous one shall live by faith as the Christian who gets to live eternally by his faithfulness. And that's not the gospel. This is talking about the righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live because his faithfulness. And Christ is the single inclusive representative. So by his resurrection, we all live. We all live because of his faithfulness. To show that you have free will, you can resist this gospel. You're free to resist it. Paul said to the Jews who heard him in Acts, but he just preached the gospel about Christ. He didn't tell them to believe or anything. They just said, we don't buy it. And Paul said, well, obviously you don't consider, consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. So we'll go to the Gentiles. They'll listen. So he did. And he preached to the Gentiles. And as many as were appointed to eternal life that day, Believed, believed having been sealed upon hearing the gospel. We'll go into that at a later time. So, the gospel of this other teacher does not emphasize God's act in Christ, but man's action for God. It does not recognize the radical incapacity of mankind, which Calvin, I think rightly called total depravity. This writer does not, the other gospel, does not recognize the radical incapacity of mankind in sin, but presupposes some capacity of reason, thus ruling out salvation as purely belonging to the Lord, which Jonah said in 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm in the belly of a sea monster here. There's nothing I can do. If I'm going to be saved, it's going to have to be the action of God. To make this fish throw up. And God did. And then. Jonah went to a town and everybody got saved. The gospel of the teacher. And that's what Campbell called him. And I'm going to call him that for now until I can find something better that I think I could call him. Stands in opposition to Yahweh and to his anointed one. Paul's gospel is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. In fact, quickly jump to Romans 16, 25 to 26. Some people don't know, some scholars don't know if this was in the original epistle of Paul, whether it was an added postscript or whatever. But whatever it is, it's a true perception of what Paul's gospel is. So I would say, let's go with it. Romans 16, 25. Again... Presenting a kind of an inclusio, that is, something said at the end that rhymes with something said at the beginning. Paul's gospel is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse, or the revelation, of the mystery, which has remained silent for ages of time, but is now being made manifest—there's the word fanarao, a synonym for apocalypto—out of the scriptures of the prophets— in other words, they used to read Habakkuk 2.4 about a righteous one who will live by his faithfulness. The gospel was there, but they didn't see it. The gospel was silent. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ came, was incarnate, died, and rose from the dead that Habakkuk 2.4 popped as the gospel in the prophets. It's Jesus. He's the righteous one. He lives by resurrection because of his faithfulness to death of the cross. So if anyone is rewarded with life, it's Jesus being rewarded with life because of his faithfulness to death. And we're saved by his faithfulness. And so in Christ, all will be made alive. This is a, a, believe it or not, this is a message that's going to take a long time to convince you of, I think. But I think we're going to get an affirmative answer. Paul's epistles are an apocalypse. So again, he says... It is now being made manifest out of the scriptures of the prophets by the authoritative command of God to promote faithful obedience in all the nations. To promote faithful obedience in all the nations. How can there be faithful obedience in all the nations unless it's the faithfulness of the Son of God among all the pagans? Pagan participation in Messiah's faithfulness? What an offensive thing to think about for a refined, self-righteous, Jewish, Christian teacher, a fundi. Paul's gospel truly is the core of the new Christian teaching in its continuity and fulfillment of the scriptures of the prophets and the Torah, the Psalms, and the writings. Paul's gospel makes perfect sense. In fact, he goes on to say in Romans 3.20, And 21, that this righteousness from God, the saving act of God in Christ has been attested to by the prophets and the Torah, the law and the prophets attest to it. So God is able to strengthen you, Paul says, by means of this gospel. The other gospel weakens people by threatening them with terror texts, hell texts, wrongly interpreted stealing their eschatological assurance. It never assures them, this other teacher's gospel, it never assures them of where they or the rest of the human race and creation stands in the plan of God. It is rooted in a contract that's bilateral and involves conditions of humans rather than a covenant that is unilaterally a matter of God's faithfulness. Now, I am appealing to notes here because I have to nail this down. I have written these things out. And I'm going to put some things on the website that I write. I'm going to summarize after, I don't know, 20 messages or so. I'm going to put a, my own little epistle to Tetalesti Church and say, this is what I've taught so far. So you can relax. And so Paul's gospel is rooted in a covenant that is unilaterally a matter of God's faithfulness. I like what Ezekiel says. He came upon Israel who was writhing in her blood and tossed aside on the roadside, basically, by a mother who didn't want the baby. And you know what Yahweh said to her? I said to you, live. That's all. God says, live. This teacher's gospel said, if you do this, you'll live. Do this and live. The covenant says, live. And she lived. Read Ezekiel's. It's a very touching scene. Might even bring a tear to your eye. It never assures them. This other gospel never assures them of these things. Paul's gospel is rooted in a covenant that's unilaterally a matter of God's faithfulness mediated by Jesus' faithfulness to the benefit of all. John gets it. We have all received from his pleroma, grace after grace. We've all benefited. John one sixteen. Under this covenant there are obligations, not conditions, but obligations. There is no condition to get in to Christ. There's no condition for staying in. But there are obligations given to those. Who are in obligations to faithfulness to those who are stewards of the mysteries, especially the gospel preachers are stewards of the mysteries, and one thing is required of them, Paul said, faithfulness first corinthians four one to two after we 're in Christ, we have the obligation of faithfulness, but the faithfulness Is a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. We don't frustrate the grace of God. So, our free will after being in Christ is either frustrate the grace of God or go with it, grow in grace. So there are no conditions by which they get in or by which they stay in. They're obligated after they're in to be faithful. But this faithfulness is a gifted participation with Jesus Christ. The righteous act of God in saving his people is revealed in the gospel from faithfulness, Christ's, which continues in faithfulness in his people. It's all about Jesus Christ, this whole thing. I'm sorry. It takes away everything, doesn't it? But it gives you everything. It takes away your life in Adam. It gives you the life of the new age, the life of the coming age. You don't have to preserve your life and lose it. You can lose that old life and find your life. That's the gospel. So let's look at it very quickly. Let's take a big chunk and we'll close. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Again, Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called apostle, set apart... To the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred scriptures about his son who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and designated as the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead by the spirit of sanctification through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about a participation in the faithful obedience that is of Christ in all the nations on behalf of his name. And now he finally gets to them, including you, who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling. And <laughs> saved by faith says by calling, and God did the calling. He called you into Christ. Not everybody in the human race was born at the same moment on the same day. Nobody's born again at the same moment on the same day. God calls you into Christ. That's his thing. Verse 7, 2, 2, colon. Just like in Christmas, sometimes you have these little tags that makes it life easy. From and to. And then all you got to do is figure out who you are and who they are. From and to. Paul says, from Paul, to all those who are in Rome, loved by God, called saints. He was called apostle. He was a murderous persecutor. And called apostle. What happened between him being a murderous persecutor and being called apostle? He was shifted from sin into Christ. From death into life. Before he even believed. What intervened between Paul being persecutor and Paul being called apostle? Nothing. But unconditional grace. What intervened between you and I being pagans And then being called saints, nothing but unconditional grace. This word saints also, I think, derives from Daniel chapter 7, which we'll get to at another time. Grace to you and peace. Let me just get all the way through 15. Grace to you and peace. Peace is the mark of the kingdom of God, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's participation in the peace of the Prince of Peace, the peace made through the blood of Messiah's cross. So let me start seven again. To all those who are in Rome, loved by God, called saints, grace to you and peace. Paul makes all his epistles begin something like that. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is like Revelation saying God and the Lamb, meaning that they both are in the divine side of identity. As Paul was called apostle, he said, I received what? Grace and apostleship. So what intervened between Paul persecutor and Paul apostle? Grace. And his apostleship was grace. He knew that. So he could say, I labor more than all these other men that have the name apostle. But it is not I, but the grace of God that's with me. For I am what I am by the grace of God. I am an apostle. It's by the grace of God. Paul was called apostle by an unconditional act of God's grace. So the addressees of this epistle were called saints by an unconditional act of God's grace. Nothing intervened between Paul being the persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, to him being called apostle, Except for grace. Because the triune God said, we better call Paul. We better call Paul out from Saul. The grace is unconditional. Paul says, I received grace and apostleship. The purpose was so that he could bring the pagan nations into our participation with the faithfulness of Jesus. What a, what a commission. The saints at Rome are called saints for the same reason. That his addressees at Corinth or Thessalonica or Ephesus or Colossae or in the church of the house of Nympha or the church in the house of Archippus, many house churches back then, they have been sanctified by the same act by which they were justified or delivered by the saving act of God in Christ by the Spirit. Christ has become for them, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30, wisdom, sanctification, righteousness, and redemption. And so let's look at verse 8. I'm going to read 8 through 15, my translation, just give you some thoughts and to see, because what I'm doing here is coming up to 16 and 17, where he makes his thesis statement for his gospel. And that anticipates a kind of dialectic of contradictories where he presents the counter gospel and then replies to the counter gospel and has a knock down, drag out with this teacher whose arrival he anticipates in Rome because they've been everywhere else. And he knocks him down and drags him out before he even gets to Rome. One8: First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ concerning you, because the news of your fidelity, your faithfulness, is being spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that I constantly make mention of you in my prayers, always beseeching that if it is somehow possible in God's will, that I may at now at last succeed in coming to you. You see, I'm longing to see you that I might impart a spiritual gift to you to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged through one another's faith Or faithfulness. Yours and mine. Now I want you to know brothers and sisters. That I have often resolved to come to you. But was hindered until now. That I might produce some fruit among you. Also. As I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm in debt. Both to Greeks and to barbarians. Non-Greeks. See, the Jews looked at the Greeks as pagans, and the Greeks looked at the barbarians, those outside of Greece, as barbarians. And then he says, both to the educated and the uneducated, so I am ready and willing to preach the good news to you also who are at Rome. The thesis statement follows, the parody of the teacher follows that from 118 to 32. This teacher says these pagans are all without excuse. Paul says to this teacher in Romans 2 1, You're without excuse who judge these others. Aren't you the one without excuse? How can you avoid the judgment you're pronouncing on these people? If God is a vengeful God, then in the words of William Money, we all got it coming, kid. All right. Thank you. Let's take a few moments. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to incrementally learn, little by little, line upon line, here a little, there a little, more of the fantastic body of doctrine regarding your Son that is the Pauline epistles. We thank you that we understand the exigence which calls them forth, and we're learning this more and more to our own edification. We know that this is going to really release a deep and profound impact in our lives bringing us more into focus in the truly christian life the true christian life and we thank you also for the privilege father